following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. Hi, I'm Heath. <laughs> I thought that... Um, if I cut off a white beard, I might find a younger face underneath, and I was disappointed. Um, an older, an older man underneath there. Um, believe it or not, I once was a younger man, and um, a long time ago, uh, 16, 17 years ago, I'm young enough to have heard that. That was weird. Um, 16, 17 years ago, I was serving as a youth pastor at Calvary Bible Church in Meredith. And um, the, uh, one of the pastors on staff, uh, who has gone to be with the Lord now, um, uh, thought that I ought to, be, um, to join the elder team, the group of elders, which I thought was a terrible idea. Because I'm a youth pastor for life. I'm never going to move on from that. Never going to get old. Like Pastor Peter Pan. Um, well, that didn't, didn't really work out. And I did join the elder um, team. And um, there was another, uh, another gentleman on that, um, on that team of elders named John Aaron. And we had the privilege of, I had the privilege of serving with John there at CBC uh, for the remainder of my time um, there. And we've stayed connected. Um, when the Lord called me out of that church into a different ministry, he was the first person I told. And uh, we prayed about it and um, sought the Lord and we stayed, stayed connected. And then uh, we... My family and I moved off for five years, and then the Lord called us here uh, to West Ossipee to serve. Um, and uh, that was an interesting start um, in ministry here, but it wasn't very long. I think um, maybe that Christmas, um, Christmas Eve, John and Peg and Heather and Joel came and joined us for that time. And um, I, I don't think the Lord let them leave after that. Um, as you may know, John pastored the fellowship here uh, for 22 years, or around there, 21, 22 years. Um, uh, was the pastor of the church when this building was built um, and served faithfully here um, while teaching full-time at Kingswood. Um, and so when the Lord called us here, I don't think... Um, that calling on his life changed at all. He's still called here to serve the Lord um, and has done so and has been a huge blessing to me personally, to my family, to you all. And um, the Lord is calling him as a missionary to Emmanuel Church in Rochester where he will be able to fellowship and grow with his fiancée, Mickey, soon-to-be wife. 
and we are blessed by that. But that doesn't mean that we're not going to miss you. Um, so, thanks. Now preach. Yeah, right? <laughs> sure. Thank you for all that you've done. <clears throat> and now page two. We are um, venturing into another episode of Do As I Say and Not As I Do this morning. Um, where you can learn, like I have, how to be the humblest. Um, no, not really. I'm, I'm not conceited, though I do have every right to be. Um, we're, <laughs> we are returning in our work to First Peter chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 5 through 7, and that's page 1016 in the Pew Bible, um, where the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, instructs the church in the area of humility. And I've heard, excuse me, I've heard that it said that humility is not so much a destination, but rather a pursuit. Like we never arrive at being humble, but we continuously pursue humility. Um, And it's a subject of much instruction in Scripture, and one with great examples recorded in Scripture, mostly because it's so important for us as individual disciples and united together as a group. Um, and also, it's, it's recorded over and over in Scripture, and we're given so many good examples of it because we are really bad at it uh, and need all the help that we can get. Now, you may remember uh, from last time, we were talking about uh, from First Peter the responsibilities of the elders uh, to watch over and shepherd the flock of God, and now Peter turns his attention uh, to all the members of the flock, um, elders included. So let's look at First Peter five, starting at verse five. It says, "Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders." Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we count it a great privilege to gather around your word this morning. We pray, Father, that your spirit would speak. It would not be my words, but your words this morning. And we pray, Lord, that you would align our hearts to yours. That you would make any adjustments necessary in each of us and us together as a group. That we may live and love and serve the way that you have described for us in your word. Help us, Lord Jesus, we pray in your holy name. Amen. So Peter begins with a likewise here in our text, because just as the elders, like we talked about last week, the elders um, were to look after the church with pure motives, not because they were forced to or because they're after money or after power, but they are to do this work willingly, eagerly, being examples to the flock. And so likewise... 
the younger should be subject to the elders, willingly, eagerly, as good examples to others. Now, I will say that the scholars are divided on exactly who Peter means when he's talking about the youngers versus the youngers versus the elders, who the youngers are and who the elders are. Some say that the youngers are younger ministers. He was talking about the deacons or uh, those in training. Um, And they should be in submission to the elders and overseers and pastors in the church. But some scholars say that Peter simply meant what the translators wrote here, that younger people should be in submission to the older people. And some scholars say it's a mixture of the two, that Peter meant that the younger men, because the Greek word used is masculine, that the younger men should be in submission to the elders in office because those who are elders in office are generally elder in years also. I don't know. Peter has already instructed for wives to submit to their husbands, children to submit to their parents, slaves submit to their masters. We understand that employees submit to their employers or managers, whatever. And it stands to reason here that he is instructing the flock to submit to their shepherds. I think that's consistent with Peter's message so far. And that's fine, but hard. Because, as John Calvin wrote, nothing is more repugnant to the mind of man than to be subject, to willingly submit to someone else. That's, we love that, right? That's, I can't wait to be told what to do and to do it. Yeah. Uh-huh. I, didn't, I didn't go into the military for that reason. Um, not... Not my favorite thing. And John Calvin was entirely correct. He's correct because submission to anyone requires, I I guess I can only speak for myself. This may be your favorite thing, but it requires my least favorite of all the Christian graces, and that's humility. My ears aren't that old. I I can still hear that. J.P. Lang wrote, This subordination, which is insisted upon as a principal point in the order of the Christian commonwealth, must be founded on humble submission to God. Our humble submission as members of the flock of God to the elders that he has called uh, requires submission to God first. Because this is God's design. If this was just man's rules, We could say, well, God's word doesn't say I have to do that, so I'm not going to. I don't like this form of government. I don't trust those people, so I'm not going to do it. But this is God's design. It is described in God's word. And in order to humbly submit to those who he has called to look out for us in our spiritual well-being, takes humble submission to God first. Peter says in verse 5, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There's some very important words here uh, in this verse. You know, I like to pick out those key words. And the two that are phrases, I guess, that stick out to me are clothe yourself 
and all of you. Um, Peter has already described, as I said before, the relationships of humility between husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters. And now he describes the relationship of humility of all to all. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. What that means is that humility is all of our responsibility. It's, it's not just for like those of us who you know, don't think we're much. Like your, your spiritual gift is humility. No, it's everybody's responsibility is humility. Matthew Henry wrote, Humility is the great preserver of peace and order in all Christian churches. Consequently, pride is the great disturber of them and the cause of most dissensions and breaches in the church. Humility is necessary for a church family to function. The other important phrase there is clothe yourselves. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. This is an interesting word. It's very boring in English. Clothe yourselves. You get that, right? Put on clothes. Got it. But in Greek, it's, there's more nuance to English is the hardest word, the hardest language in the world to learn and is like the dumbest. It just doesn't get it right. We're trying to keep it simple, but we miss a lot of meaning. The Greek word that's used here that is translated into English to clothe yourselves literally means to tie around yourselves with a strong knot. Sound like clothing, right? That's how I put on my shirt this morning. I tied it on with a strong knot, right? This, the Greek word is used to describe the apron worn by servants. Um, an apron tied around their waist. And I don't know if that rings any bells uh, with you, but it reminds me of our ultimate example of humility, the Lord Jesus Christ. When, well... How about you just turn in your Bible to John chapter 13? Um, and we can see this tying on of humility uh, in person. John chapter 13, starting at verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who incidentally wrote 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. I want to clarify. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm going to do, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. 
Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was was going to betray him, and that's why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. That whole servant being greater than his master and messenger greater than the one who sent him, I never got that. I never understood what Jesus meant when he said that. But he's saying, here is my example. I'm the master. I'm the teacher. I'm the Lord. And I'm willing to humble myself and wash your feet. You're not greater than me, so don't think you're better than doing this. Because those guys all walked into that room, into that upper room, to celebrate the Passover, and there was no slave to wash their feet. That's, that's typically what happened. There was somebody whose job it was to wash people's feet when they came, and there wasn't anybody to do that. So Jesus did it and said, I've done it, and you know who I am. You're not better than this. I've done it, you do it. And keep doing it. And you'll be blessed. Jesus clothed himself in humility. Like that's his whole life story. Being clothed in humility. He tied it around his waist like that towel. And he told his disciples they ought never to think that they were better than him. And he willingly humbled himself to serve them. And so they and we ought to do the same. Humility puts us in the proper position mentally to receive God's grace. Pride seeks to raise us up where we don't belong. We don't need God's grace. I'm good enough. I've never murdered anyone. I don't rob banks. I'm good enough to get into heaven. That's wrong. That's pride. Pride is what got Satan cast out. Pride is what made Eve and Adam eat the apple because they wanted to be like God. Humility bows our knee before the Father. Humility would have saved us all a lot of headache. If Adam and Eve had just been like, snake guy, you know, it's cool that you're talking and all, but God who made us said, don't do that. So we're going to go with him instead of you. I would have made the same mistake as them, so hindsight's twenty twenty, right? God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is such a powerful statement. And if we took it to heart, I think it would change almost every single 
attitude and action of our lives. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All who elevate themselves will have God as their enemy. Make it easier to understand? This is not a position anybody wants to be in or should want to be in. As verse 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Scholars speak of the image of God here with two hands. One hand is raised, holding a hammer, ready to beat down the proud, to hammer them into submission. And the other hand is under the humble, lifting them up at the proper time. And God's promise to exalt the humble at the proper time, it means just that, that he's going to lift the humble up out of the dust to, to advance to honor from disgrace, to advance to joy from grief. When the word says he's going to turn our, our mourning into dancing, turn our grief into joy, that's what he means. It's exactly what it means. This is, this is God's promise to the truly humble. The truly word, truly humble, that's really important because that is not God's promise to the falsely humble. This is, well, this is the worst. The falsely humble, the falsely humble person dresses their pride up in shabby clothes. The falsely humble person talks about their humility and how humble they are. It keeps that plaque that says the humblest, right? They're not conceited, though they have the right to be. That was a joke the first time. It was supposed to be the second time, but it's okay. It's okay. False humility makes sure that everybody knows how humble they are. Like, I'm really humble, guys. You know, it's just me. I'm just a humble guy. Um, I'm, I'm really terrible at all the things that I want to do. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're terrific. You're fantastic. Thank you. Fan those flames. It's pride. False humility isn't humility at all. It is pride in shabby clothes. And it's a sin I am guilty of over and over and over. I am the best at it. No, you're not. True humility, according to John Calvin, is defined as the person being emptied of every confidence in their own power, their own wisdom, their own righteousness, and seeks every good from God alone. Since there's no coming to God except in this way, who, having lost his own glory, ought not willingly humble himself. This is the only way to come to God in true humility recognizing that we have no power, we have no wisdom, we have no strength, we have no goodness of our own. We are entirely dependent on God for everything. If it's his breath in our lungs, 
ought we not to pour out our praise to him only? Recognizing that is humility. Verse 7, I used to think was just kind of a a tack-on. It's kind of an add-on thing. It's not really related. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. There's not even punctuation in between the humility part. English puts a comma there. Greek doesn't have any punctuation. That's what makes it more exciting. Verse 7 is a great demonstration of this concept of humility and submission to the Father. It's a demonstration that we have no confidence in our own power, wisdom, and righteousness and are wholly dependent on God for grace. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. How is, how is casting, literally throwing all our anxieties, our cares, and our worries or troubles on our Heavenly Father an act of submission and humility? I'm glad you asked. Because trusting God in this way is the opposite action and attitude of thinking that we can control everything and that our that we can handle it. I'm I'm strong enough I can handle it. Our need for control is a function of pride. We either say, God, you don't need to bother with this because I've got it. When we do that, we say, number one, God, I know that you, you know, you've made a lot of promises to me in your word and you care about what's going on in my life, but I've got it. You don't need to worry about me. Go take care of somebody else. They're, you know, they need you more or they're more important than me. What are you saying when you say that? You're defying God's word. You are defying God's will, his love for you. When you say, I've got it, Lord, you don't need to worry about me. We're also saying, we can handle it. (laughs) No, you can't. We can't. We can't handle it. We can't. Okay? Just get over it. I'm glad that you're all here to listen to my sermon to myself. Just unwilling passengers on the crazy train. (laughs) By casting all of our cares on him, we are releasing control to the Father. Not that we were ever really in control in the first place. It is an absolute delusion to think that we're in control of anything. Have you ever wondered why Jesus said that we should turn and become like children in Matthew 18? Ever wonder what advantage kids have over adults? They're so small and weak and can't grow beards. (laughs) 
Jesus said in Matthew 18, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. At that time, the, the disciples were arguing over who is the greatest. Like, but I'm, you know, I'm Peter, and I got to walk on water, and you jerks were just in the boat. You know, well, I'm uh, John, and Jesus called me a son of thunder. Listen to me. Belts really loud. You know, they're just like fighting over who is the best. And Jesus said, guess what? None of you are. This kid is better off than you guys because he's humble. And you're not. What advantage do children have over adults? Kids trust their parents. I'm speaking generally. Probably not your kids, but kids, theoretical kids. They trust their parents. They have confident reliance on their parents' goodness. They run to their parents when they're hurting. They don't wonder about their worthiness. I don't want to bother mom and dad with the with the blood issue, <laughs> right? I'll be fine. They don't need to worry about it. They don't question the reality of their parents' love for them. They just simply accept it. And I think, for me, the last phrase of verse 7 may be the most powerful phrase in this whole text. Maybe just for me. When he says... Cast all your anxieties on him. I'm good. Take instructions. Bible says, do it. Do it. Be a good soldier. Here's your orders. Here's your motivation. Right? Obedience. Right? Let's close in prayer. That's the end of the verse. Right? Wrong. Cast all your anxieties on him. Because he cares for you. And I think sometimes, not to plunge too far into armchair psychology, but sometimes I think or act or feel is if I know that God loves me, after all, the, the evidence is overwhelming. But the thought that he cares for me is different in my mind, that he cares about me and what's going on in my heart, in my life, in your heart, in your life. That's different. But we, we say, I'm, the Bible says I'm supposed to love people. I don't have to like them, but I have to love them. And we make that distinction in our minds sometimes. And I think that's exactly what this is. I know God loves me. He died for me. Jesus died on the cross for me. Even if I was the only one, even if you were the only one, he would have done it anyway. What, a, what greater love has any man than to give up his life for his friends? All right. Do you get that? 
And that's great. But he cares about you. And for me, that's like a whole nother level. That he cares about how I feel. He cares about what I think. He cares about what's going on in my life and the things that I feel are out of control. Or the thing, even worse, the things that I think I do control. He cares. He literally has me at his heart. That's what the Greek says. He has you at his heart. Like, you're not just a peripheral, I've got all the atoms stuck together, and so therefore I also, you know, you're fine, you're good. We're a lot closer to the center of God's heart than that. He cares about us. It's mind-blowing, and it's wonderful, and I need to be reminded of it all the time. And maybe you do too. I want to close with scripture before I cry anymore. Psalm 37. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Do not be envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, and those, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while... The wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their, do- their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. But those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, 
for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young, and now I am old. Amen. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good. So shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or leave or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look you will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he cannot be found. Mark the blameless, and behold, the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this wonderful reminder of your care for us as our great shepherd. That you don't just love us in some far off moment in history. We are grateful for that love. But you care about us and you care about what happens to us and how we think and feel. It's not easy work to cast all our cares on you. Forgive us for that. For our desire for control over problems, over our lives. Thank you for the constant reminder that control is a delusion. Father, may our trust in you grow. Our desire to rely on you grow. Lord, I pray that we as a people would pursue humility. To recognize continuously our utter dependence on your grace. We do thank you for your great love for us. That you willingly gave your life on the cross. That through faith in you, we might be forgiven, adopted as your children, and have a place at your table in eternity. Father, if there's anyone here who has not accepted that great gift, may they cry out even now in the quietness of their own hearts, asking you for forgiveness and trusting you with their eternity and with their today. Lord, we thank you for these wonderful reminders. 
Help us, Lord, not to just say amen and forget it, but to put this truth into practice, to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God that you might lift us up at the proper time. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890.